Is that day is dying in the West? Is that? Oh, abide with me. That's a good one too. Uh, uh, Mark chapter four. If you have your Bible with you, Pew Bible. Looking at Mark chapter four tonight. I think it's at least for me quite helpful to try and track Mark's narrative as we go along. And so just to situate where we're at before we read it, Mark chapter 4, if I can find it. If you were here last week, you'll recall we looked at the family, Jesus' family and his scribes put forward two mistaken hypotheses about why Jesus was acting the way he was. His family said he was out of his mind. The scribes said he's demon-possessed. That's why he's doing what he's doing. And that seems to signify a little bit of a transition in the narrative. So chapter 4, 1, we begin a pretty tightly structured section in the book of Mark. So uh, from 4, 1 going forward, there's four parables. So there's the parable of the four soils. There's a parable about the lamp. There's a parable about the growing seed and a parable about a mustard seed. That takes us through most of chapter 4. And then at 4.35 through the end of chapter 5, there's four signs. Jesus calms the storm. He casts legion out of this uh, demon-possessed man. He heals the woman with the issue of bleeding, and he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. So we have four parables, four signs. So kind of in this uh, pretty tightly structured block here. This block of four parables we're looking at is the longest block of uninterrupted teaching in Mark's gospel, other than in chapter 13, where Mark, uh, Jesus looks ahead to the judgment coming on Jerusalem. We're looking at tonight, uh, 4, 1 through 20, the parable of the soils. It's the longest parable in the gospel of Mark, and I think it's the longest because it plays a significant role in Mark's gospel. So if in the passage we looked at last week, Jesus' family and the scribes said, here's why we think Jesus is acting this way. Jesus responds with a parable saying, here's why different groups respond to me in different ways. This explains the diverse response. So this parable then provides a sort of interpretive grid as we move forward in the book of Mark for why different figures respond in different ways to Jesus. So Herod's interesting that we'll get to in a few weeks, I think in chapter 6, He seems to be fascinated by Jesus. He's asking questions about him. Of course, John the Baptist, he has this sort of attraction and repellent to as well. That He arrests John the Baptist. uh, John the Baptist makes him uncomfortable, and yet he keeps wanting to hear John's preaching. So there's kind of this interest, and yet uh, reading in terms of this parable, we would not say roots of the good news preaching go down in Herod's life. It's sort of a superficial interest. Okay, let's read uh, chapter 4, 1 through 20. It's a little bit longer block here. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, 
and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears let to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you have been, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then with tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is God's word. You see here, we talked last week about these Mark and sandwiches, and we see a little bit of a similar dynamic here. So Jesus is by the seashore in 4.1, and then do you see in 4.36, at the end of this block of teaching, he says, let's go to the other side, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. So it seems like all of chapter 4 is here by the seaside. And yet in the middle of it, verses 10 and following, when they were alone, those who uh, were with him, with the 12, asked about the parable. So that seems to be a later occurrence that now Mark is reporting earlier in, in order. And indeed, 4.10 through 12 interprets uh, the parables, why Jesus teaches in parables. Let's look first at the parable, then that little middle section, and then Jesus' interpretation. Verse 1, again, he's by the sea. I think this is the fourth time in four chapters that we've seen Jesus by the sea. Again, there's a large crowd that as we've seen this dynamic, it both is an opportunity to teach and yet is also an obstacle such that he has to go out to the sea in a boat. And perhaps it inhibits the sort of in-depth teaching or discipleship that Jesus does in private with the 12 and other disciples. Uh, People who research this sort of thing say that there is, or, or, or there is a, sorry, I'm saying this backwards or wrong. On the Sea of Galilee, there is a bay that is now called the Bay of Parables because it is thought to traditionally be the spot where this happened. Uh, whether it is or not, how could you prove? But it is a sort of natural amphitheater where the hillside comes down to the water. Uh, and scientists who do this sort of investigation have demonstrated that you could indeed project your voice across the water around this bay to quite a large crowd. It says in verse 2, he was teaching them many things in parables. What is a parable? I 
I know Dan and Emily led a study on this, so I don't, I don't want to put you guys on the spot, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's setting two things alongside each other, literally. Um, any other, anyone else want to take a stab? It's a metaphor and allegory. Yeah, yeah, sort of metaphor, allegory, yeah. Uh, they're almost, I think it, it's helpful to think of them as being like a short story. Um, some are very short, some are longer, but they're so, sort of short story making a point. Some can be very short, so we noticed last time uh, which was a new observation to me, but uh, before he talks about a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, it says he answered them in parables. So apparently that in itself is a little parable, a little short story. A kingdom that's at civil war can't stand. Okay, so there's a very compressed one. Of course, some of Jesus' most well-known parables are more elaborate. The parable of the two sons or the prodigal son, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? It's a, it's a, a, a more detailed narrative, a short story, but they all kind of are driving home a central point. At least that to me helps me to think about a parable, that it's a short story driving home a central point. So I'm not, not then looking to allegorize every single detail of a parable. Although in this case, the various types of soils do represent different people. And so it does, it is making a sort of allegorical point there. Jesus' parables draw on daily agrarian or seafaring life. They don't use specialized language. They don't draw on specialized expertise. They're the stuff of everyday life. But that does not, therefore, mean that they are simple to understand. They require reflection, meditation. We've got to chew on them. Okay, so he's teaching them in parables, and this first parable is the parable of of the soils. Verse 3 begins with this instruction, listen. And then do you see in verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. It's the same imperative, listen, hear. Begins and ends with this instruction. And in itself, perhaps this should be a clue as to the point of the parable. But I want you to imagine for a moment, you're with the crowd, maybe you're one of the disciples, or maybe you're just along to see what all the hubbub is about. And you hear what you hear in verses three through nine. A sower is sowing and there's four types of soil. And then it ends, the good soil, lots of stuff grows up. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What would you think this parable was about? If you didn't, you know, if you just bracket out for a minute that you know how Jesus, what Jesus says is about later, what would you think it was about? Good gardening practices. Good gardening practices, there you go. Yeah, better homes and gardens, uh, first century edition, yeah. I think that we're a little stumped. It's okay. It's not, you know, if we're imagining being with the crowd, it's not on face value obvious what Jesus is getting at here. Although the hint about hearing uh, maybe clues us in. Oh, in the, when Jesus tells his disciples later, but in the initial story in verse three, he just says it's the bird that comes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do read it beforehand. <laughs> Just teasing, Jack. Yeah, no good. Yeah, Albert. It's funny that 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you gotta wonder, was there was there a bigger context here? Did yeah. Jesus preach something, or did he preach after, or did, was he just there telling these stories one after? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, I it it says he was teaching them in many or taught them many things in parables, and we do have three more parables that apparently were preached on the same occasion, and the the um. The lamp under a basket is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bread. It doesn't really, or bed, it doesn't really say what it's about. The next one, though, it says the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed. Uh, and then the final one, what, uh, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable should we? So he, he does start to get at, okay, I'm talking about the kingdom of God here. But at least initially, yeah, it's a bit enigmatic. You wonder, is it the same crowd that keeps coming back? Or do some people just say, yeah, I tried that. That was something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Dan. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, well, this is yeah. 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 And we'll come back to that in just a second, but yeah, yeah, that is, it's not an easy thing to do. Okay. So the story is a sower casting seeds across the field. And maybe the best interpretation of this is there's a Van Gogh painting of the sower with a sling of seeds around his shoulder and he's tossing the seeds out to the field. Um, There's four types of soil. The hard-packed path, there's soil that's got rocks in it, there's soil among thorns, and there's good soil. Notice Jesus is not saying that he equally distributed 25% of the seeds in each of these sorts of spots. Rather, I think the picture is the sower is going along and sowing a good field, but the field does have a footpath that the sower walks back and forth, and some seeds fall on that. Uh, there are some rocky patches in the, in the field, and he probably notices come harvest time that those patches never produce as well as the other patches. Um, and there's probably some thorns, I imagine, along the rock wall or whatever. Uh, so it's not saying, you know, this is a really bad field that, that three quarters are worthless and one quarter is good and he sows it all, but rather just saying in the nature of the case, as he sows across the whole field, there are some patches with these different conditions. Now, looking at the commentaries, and I'm sorry I can't resolve this any better. Maybe some of you that have more practice in the field might know. There seems to be some debate. Um, On average, it seems like a tenfold harvest would have been good and sevenfold would have been average. Some people say 30, 60, 100-fold is believable. Others are saying, no, it's unbelievable or miraculous. I really don't have any way of knowing. And it seems to me that it probably depends what sort of seed he's sowing, what's coming up and what's a good harvest or not. Um, But at any rate, it does seem to be you know, 30, 60, 100 fold does seem to be a good return on, on the harvest. At first glance, this parable is about four types of soil, but when we really stop and think about it, there's only two types of soil. There's productive soil that bears fruit, and there's unproductive soil that for one reason or another does not produce. Okay, let's put a pin in the parable for just a second and keep tracking with the story here. In verses 10 and 12, there's this brief interlude. It's likely jumping ahead chronologically to a time when Jesus is alone. Uh, uh, So it's a change in time and place. Now there's only the 12 apostles and those around him. That little phrase, those around him with the 12, uh, you'll recall if you were here last week, 
when Jesus, uh, his family comes to get him, a crowd was sitting around him and he looked around at those who sat around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Okay. So that it seems to be more than just a passing. They happen to be around him, but it's saying these are the people that are following him. These are his disciples, the ones around him. In addition to the 12 whom he later called apostles. And they ask, what's this business about parables? It says they asked him about the parables. Why are you using these stories? What are these about? Uh, Verse 11, we see this division. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God or the mystery of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. There's a division between those who have been given the secret and those who hear everything only in parables. And again, it mirrors the distinction that we saw at the end of last week between those, uh, he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and or brother and sister and mother, and the others are not my true family. So those who orient themselves around Jesus are his true family. Again, we have a similar distinction here. There's those who have received the mystery of the kingdom of God and those who are on the outside. And so coming back to this point, Dan, parables are a sort of ironic teaching method. For disciples, for those being brought up in the faith, parables are very helpful. They clarify the kingdom of God, the life of faith, discipleship, what it means to live well. Uh, And so when we hear a parable like uh, the kingdom of God being like a pearl of great price, that the man goes and sells everything to buy the field, that helps us to think through, okay, this is something that's of exceeding value, like uh, we talked about this morning, that it's more important than anything else. And that's helpful for a disciple to understand that parable. But to those on the outside, the parable doesn't clarify, but rather it's opaque. It obscures the kingdom. It makes it difficult to find the kingdom. So there's this ironic twofold uh, dynamic to the parables. Jesus says, indeed, I teach in parables because it fulfills Isaiah 6. They may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Uh, And in pointing back to this prophecy, especially in Isaiah's day, when God says this to Isaiah, he's saying, look, the fact that no one responds to your message doesn't mean that you failed as a messenger. I already know ahead of time they're not going to respond to this message, but nevertheless, take this warning to them. And Jesus here quoting that is saying, there's going to be people who don't respond well to my message. That's to be expected. It's not a sign that I've failed. In 13 through 20, then he, he unpacks the parable. He begins by saying, how do you not understand, or do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Seems to be saying there's a key in this parable that's important to the rest. He's saying, if you don't have the right sort of soil where the seeds can grow, then the other parables won't bear fruit either. And really, verse 14 is the key to the whole parable. The sower sows the word. Once you have that key, you really almost don't need the rest of the interpretation. You can sort of start to unpack the different soils yourself. That that seems to be the key. And so when he says twice, listen... He who has ears, let him hear. He's already hinting at that, but now he's making it totally clear. The sower is sowing the word. This is about my preaching and how people respond. The word is the seed. Uh, Here then, maybe his, his initial audience wasn't totally 
out, uh, you know, without a, a, a clue for how to make sense of this. Isaiah 40, verse 8, which sometimes we've used after the reading of, of the passage for a Sunday, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There's a little bit of a parallelism there between the word of God and plants. In Isaiah 55, it's even more explicit, 55, 10 to 11, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing to which I sent it. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So in Isaiah, there's already a few places and other places in scripture where uh, God's word is compared to different plants. Uh, and, and, and the harvest is also at times used as a metaphor for returning from exile. So maybe they wouldn't have been totally without a clue trying to make sense of this. Okay, if the sower sows the word, and that's the key, the question is, who is the sower? In the parable, or in, it's not a trick question. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, and you're uh, you're getting a little bit ahead of me there, but that's a good point. That the uh, that there does seem to be a reciprocal thing that uh, having good soil is res- someone who responds well to the word Jesus says at the end of the parable, and yet. How do you respond to the word unless you have good soil, to use the terms of the parable? So uh, I think the logic of the parable then, if the sower sows the word, the sower is Jesus. He comes preaching, remember Mark's basic thing um, in, in chapter one, he came proclaiming the gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, he comes sowing the word, he is the sower, and different people respond in different manners. The parable then is not just a parable about preaching in general. It's not a parable just about reading the Bible, but it's a parable about Jesus the sower and why some seed produces and others do not. So it's about how people respond to Jesus coming to preach the kingdom of God. Jesus then unpacks it and he says there's three reasons the seed might not grow. The first is that if it lands on the path and is snatched by birds, he says this is like when Satan comes and takes away the word. And we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark that there are people with spiritual oppression that have different, uh, uh, possessed by unclean spirits, and they can't receive God's word until those spirits are driven out. The second type of soil is like rocky soil where roots can't be put down. People initially respond to the preaching of Jesus with joy, and so we see this great crowd around him but they don't put down roots. And so when hardship and persecution come on account of the word, they ultimately fall away. The third type of soil is thorny ground. People who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceit of riches and the desire for things choke out the seed of the word. And so it proves unfruitful. 
it's interesting to notice in these, in these two types of soil that we have uh, opposite risks. On the one hand, hardship and persecution may lead to giving up on the faith. On the other hand, an easy and comfortable life and desire for things of the world may lead, may choke out the word. And so there's risks on both sides of uh, persecution, stamping out one's faith, but too easy of a life uh, leading to faith being choked out. And I think the general risk in North America is not that we're going to be persecuted and lose our faith, but that, the, the, as Jesus puts it, the cares of the world, the deceits of riches, and the desires for things are probably the real risk that we need to be on guard for. Jesus uh, implies here you can guard for persecution by having a rootedness within. He says they don't have any roots inside, so we can be rooted in the word and in our faith and prepare us for persecution. But he doesn't offer any guard against thorns. I wonder, do you have any suggestions on how you guard against thorns choking out the word? The armor of God, there's a great way to, yeah. Keep your overhead low? Bring a sword? Yeah. Yeah, keep your overhead low and not worry too much about get caught up in that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think being an active gardener, <laughs> tending to weeds in your heart. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Your hands get all scratched up and yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, the emphasis though of this parable is not on these three types, although Jesus warns us, you're going to see crowds that are excited about me that will fall away. You're going to see those who, you know, the the rich young ruler who uh, is so close And yet when he's told, sell all that you have, he has a lot of things. And so he goes away in despair. He's warning people, you're going to see people in these camps. Yet the emphasis in the end is finally on the great abundance that will come from Jesus's ministry. It says, those sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Okay, even one seed that takes root and bears fruit could produce a hundredfold. And he says that this last category, the good soil, is those who hear the word and accept it. So it's all at the end. He said twice, listen, him who has, he who has ears, let him hear. It's all about, are you hearing the word and are you receiving it? Are you accepting it? What, how do you respond to Jesus's preaching? It's the same dynamic that we saw at the end of chapter 3. Jesus' true family is those who orient their lives around Jesus. Likewise, those who are fruitful are those who hear Jesus' preaching and accept it. But as Chris uh, uh, pointed out, there's a sort of paradox here. It seems that you need the right soil to hear the seed or to have the seed planted and bear fruit, to hear the word and receive it. And yet having the right soil is receiving it rightly. And so there's kind of this back and forth that you can... You're almost in a catch-22 there. And so there is certainly a supernatural spiritual dimension that responding well is the work of the Holy Spirit uh, within us, preparing us to respond well to Jesus' word. 
And so the same challenge comes to us today, that Jesus, we hear his preaching through the Gospels, and we're, we face the same challenge. Uh, is it something that will take root in our lives that we will hear and accept? Or is it something that will be choked out by the cares of this world or stamped out by persecution? And again, as last week, it ends on how do we respond to Jesus's teaching? Any other last uh, comments or questions? Uh, in what... In, Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, and, and probably to really get at it, it would be good to go through um, Isaiah 6 a little bit more than, than we really have scope to tonight. But I, I think part of it is this mystery of God's sovereignty, that for whatever reason, God's spirit is at work in some people's hearts in a way that it's not in others, and they simply never turn and God's saying that's not outside the scope of my plan but in a way that's beyond really our understanding that's within the scope of of my plan um, is that a sufficient answer or yeah I mean it is it is the the um, uh, the the uh, I'm trying to think of the right word here I mean it is the stumbling block this is the challenge of you know why doesn't <laughs> yeah why doesn't everybody um, and and yeah, 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 and we think in, um, in in the Exodus story is maybe one of the spots that plays this out the most in depth, where sometimes we're told Pharaoh hardens his own heart, other times we're told that God hardens his heart so that he doesn't repent, and there's this, ba- you know, which one's true? Is it God or is it Pharaoh? Well, both are true, uh, and how we reconcile those, you know, it's probably beyond our comprehension to do, and yet we see both aspects of this, that Pharaoh's totally responsible for hardening his heart and not repenting, and yet also there's this dynamic where God's at work in that process as well. So, yeah, yeah, Chris and John, you guys can thumb wrestle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. 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 And this, the same, same thing we reflected on a little bit last week, that Mary and the brothers are saying he's, out, he's lost his mind and yet uh, uh, seem to be there at the cross and certainly are there in the early church. And so, yeah, again, there's this... It's not a straightforward, um, immediate path. Uh, and then what do you do with someone like Judas? That he's there, he's not just part of the crowd that's hearing some of the teaching, but he's there with Jesus for two years and yet still betrays him in the end. Yeah. Or for that matter, Peter betrays Jesus just as profoundly as, as Judas does and yet is restored again. So uh, that's the good news is that, that we can be restored even, even if we betray him. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think in a, in, in a um, subsidiary sense that 
ideally a preacher is preaching Christ. And so it's Christ's proclamation being echoed by me or whoever's teaching. Um, but I think in the first instance, it's not how do you respond to my sermon, but it's how do you respond to Christ's, Christ's word. Yeah. Yep. And you see in here the the soils, the different people and what they face is no different than the persecution, the temptations I mean that Jesus faced. Yeah. There was power, there was provision, there was protection. Yeah. Those are addressing all these different people with these different soils. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's great. That it's the same temptations he faced that yeah. that drive it up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Or even we were talking gas prices. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You're not buying guns, Albert? And <laughs> yeah, Jen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Ties it all together. Yeah, those are, uh, thank you, guys. Those are great connections, too, with this morning and, and uh, Revelation. Yeah. Well, let's pray and sing our closing hymn then. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus' parables, which challenge us, which teach us. Lord, uh, life is found in hearing your word and accepting it. And yet there's no, uh, there's not really dirt work that we ourselves can do to amend our soils. Ultimately, it's work that your spirit needs to be doing within us. So we ask that by your spirit, you would make us people who hear your word and accept it. That like Jesus facing the temptation in the wilderness, we would stand on your word. We would say your word is enough. Let us, Lord, not only... uh, affirm your word in the abstract, but be diligent in reading your word so that we could know what it actually says. So we can know how to respond to temptations, to respond to fears and concerns. Lord, uh, ultimately we stand on your word and yet we too do worry about uh, our needs for protection, for uh, the world powers, all the things going on. And so we ask that you would be in sovereign control over those situations. I forgot that we usually take prayer requests and and reflect on that, so we should should do that as well. Uh, Here we have time to pray.